0: Last week we brought you part one of Len MacLeod's story, and today we continue where 93-year-old Len left off. But first, let us refresh you on Len's story so far. Len was barely four years old when his father died from the effects of gassing on the Western Front in France during World War I. Times were tough in Australia following World War I, but Len's mother managed to feed the family and make repayments on the war service loan for their home in Footscray. And along came World War Two. Len lied about his age and enlisted in the army twice before being discovered and discharged. The third time, he succeeded by once again changing his date of birth and his name. So it was off to jungle training for 16-year-old infantryman Len. Leaving his mum to believe he was in the Home Guard or the Cadets, 16-year-old Len was on a train to Townsville and then on a troop ship to Port Moresby, New Guinea and participation in World War Two. And so his big adventure in life began. In New Guinea, he volunteered to serve on the Dakota DC-3s, dropping supplies to our troops fighting throughout New Guinea. Some of Len's mates were killed when one of the Dakotas crashed, and after a few months, Len asked to be returned to the infantry and jungle patrols. Eventually, Len was hospitalised with dengue fever and dysentery, resulting in his repatriation to Australia for further treatment in Melbourne. Len was still only 16. While recuperating, Len went rabbit shooting with a friend who was on leave from the AIF. The friend accidentally discharged a spread of number 1 shot into Len's hip and legs. Len recovered in record time, but received a medical discharge from the Army. Len had just turned 17. Undaunted, Len obtained a job in the engine room of the carrier, Olga Topic. Despite knowing nothing whatsoever about ships and their engine rooms, quite by chance, Len soon signed up with the U.S. Army Small Ships, and was assigned to the S one four seven Boppel, a steel steamer of two hundred and sixty seven gross tons. Boppel was referred to as the slowest boat, the venerable Boppel. Her top speed was six knots, approximately. 11 kilometers per hour, or as slow as a wet week. Len was soon back in New Guinea waters and participating in all of the battle areas that would become prominent in our military history. While serving on his next ship, the concrete-built SS Armand Considere, Len travelled to the war-devastated regions of the Philippines, then on to Japan, where they were moored close by the USS Missouri, to witness the Japanese surrender. We take up Len's story in Tokyo at the Japanese surrender. Len's chatting with my colleague Helen Meyer.
1: Len had taken an unofficially sanctioned trip ashore from where the SS Armand Considere was moored and caught a train into Tokyo itself. On his return to the ship, the captain called him in.
2: He called me up and he said, Where have you been? I said, Oh, I said, I just went to walk around uh, over on the coast. And he said, You got back, they didn't put a knife in you, or didn't hurt you anyway. I said, They didn't even look at me, didn't even speak to me, didn't want to know me. I said, If I looked at them, they looked away. And he said, Well, he said, That's good, you know. I didn't tell him for a while. Then after a while, I thought, oh, well, I'll tell him. I said, oh, I I I should have caught a train. I took a quick trip into Tokyo on the train and back. And that's when he looked at me. Oh, he said, you better not say anything. I should have to report you in at the head office over that. He said, I'd almost court-martialed you for that. He said, we were told not to let anyone go ashore until they surrender and he said, that won't be for another couple of days at least before they all get here. And I said, oh, I said, don't worry about it. I said, I won't tell anyone if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he let me go. He said, but, oh, he said, don't go ashore again. I said, I have no intention to. I'll been ashore. So that's how it started. But then after it was signed, after a matter of three or four or five days, the treaty was signed. I can show you the picture of them all coming down, coming ashore, coming onto the Missouri to sign it, all the top brass. We could see them going onto the Missouri to sign. After a while, the skipper called me up and he said, you're eligible for repatriation. Words come through to repatriate you. He said, but we would like you to stay on the ship because the ship was going to be handed over to UNRWA and it's going to China. I said, well, for the start, what do you mean UNRWA? He said, that's United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation.
1: UNRWA, or the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, was an international relief agency largely dominated by the United States, but representing 44 nations. It was founded in 1943 and became part of the UN in 1945. Its purpose was to plan, coordinate, administer or arrange for the administration of measures for the relief of victims of war in any area under the control of any of the United Nations through the provision of food, fuel and clothing, shelter and other basic necessities or medical and other essential services. The Armand Considere on which Len Macleod was serving was, of course, a supply ship.
2: It's been handed over to the United Nations and I will sign you up. I don't think they could have found another fireman to take me place, or well, it was going to be very hard. And they said, well, you stay with us, come to... Shanghai, think about it for a while. Or he said, you can pack your bag and get ready to leave, and I'll fly you out to Manila and back to Australia. He said, that's the only way we can get you back via Manila. I thought about it for a while, and I thought, oh, well, while the war's over, everything's all right, I'll go. So I stayed with the ship. We pack up, and we go into uh, China. When I got to Shanghai, as I told you, I've seen every battlefield all the way, right through from Port Moresby, Milan Bay, around the top of New Guinea, up to the Philippines, right into Tokyo. But when I got to uh, Shanghai, it affected me worse than anything I'd seen. The starvation, the death, Destruction had a more effect on me. How it was, there was nothing intact. Every morning they'd go around the streets with a big, like a hay cart, big steel wheels, which we'd have on a farm, and we'd have a couple of horses in it. But they didn't have horses; they'd have half a dozen Chinese pulling it, and four or five or half a dozen pushing it. And that was only one. They'd go around every street in Shanghai. Every street in Shanghai, they'd have one of these things go around it, and they didn't have tarpaulins. They had bags sewn together as a tarpaulin, and pick up the bodies. I see the thing at nine o'clock in the morning, and I wonder if I walked ashore. I see it at midday. It might be four feet high. All the bodies crossways on it. Men, women, and kiddies stacked. Until I seen it a bit later, they couldn't put any more bodies on the top. And they'd put this bag tarpaulin over it, all these bags sounding. They'd put that over the top of them and hang the bag over and take it away and unload it and then come back for more. Thousands of people. I can understand how the Chinese must have felt, you know. It was just terrible. And just recently, I've seen just only a month ago, or less than a month ago, I've seen the show on the ABC, show in Shanghai. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. The road works, how it's grown up, and what it looked like. And I said to my daughter and son-in-law, I said, I'd like to see that now. It wakes me up, keeping thinking about it. I said I'd like to see it, so they made an arrangements and we're going on the 23rd of this month. I've already booked on it. And we're going over there to have a look. And so I we'll probably put what I've seen to rest. But that hurt me more than seeing what was caused by warfare. There it was caused by nothing but starvation and how they starved them and how they treated the Chinese, you know, little girls and women. Some of them would come up to me. We'd give them everything we had on the ship. Everything we could do, we done. And after about six or seven weeks there, it got to me too much. And I said, you better make an application to get me back to Australia. The captain thanked me for staying with him on the two occasions, going into the Tokyo with him. All other Australians, all other small ship personnel, were only allowed to go to this far as the Philippines. And the Australian government with called all personnel back. But somehow, I know of one or two others the same as me, that got to one of my friends. Uh, He got to Tokyo. He was in Tokyo, not on my ship, but another ship. He was in Tokyo, and maybe one or two others. But all others from the small ships, which amounted to approximately 3,300 or four hundred, were all repatriated back to Australia. But they come up to me, the same captain on the Armand concertier come up to me, and he said, I told you earlier on, he was in the Manila, and he said, by rights, he said, you should be repatriated. But he said, what we will do, we will send, sign you over to the United States Army, ATS, that was the Army Transport Service, which come directly under the American Army. He said, we'll sign you over to the ATS and you could stay on as a pilot, or you could take repatriation. And I said, well, I'll stay on. And that's how we went into, eventually ended up in Japan. And the same captain, when he said, you're eligible for repatriation, but we would like you to stay on and go to China. And I said, I'll go to China with you after a couple of hours thinking about it. I said, all right, I'll sign up. But whether I signed anything, I can't remember ever signing an official contract. I don't know. (laughs) And to tell you that when I left Australia, we were only going to New Guinea. I didn't have a passport. All I had that they finally come up with me somewhere up in the island, somewhere. They come up with a document of identity stating that I was an Australian, and if I was captured, I was to be treated as a civil employee of the United States War Department. Whether the Japanese would have paid much attention to it or not, I don't know. But that is as far as I was up to China, you know.
1: Lynn, it's an incredible story and thank you so much for sharing it with us. You've had me in tears here. After those tumultuous times that you lived through, Lynn, I hear that when you returned to Victoria, you actually poured the cast for the eternal flame at the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne, which seems so fitting. How did that come about?
2: Well, as I told you earlier, my brother was a credentialed, moulder. He was kept in reserved occupation and moulded hand grenades, mainly hand grenades or small bombs that they could put on the road for blowing up vehicles, you know, but mainly hand grenades. He must have made tens of thousands of cast iron hand grenades, which they used to take from Metas in Gordon Street, Footscray, up to the munition factory which was only about two miles up the road in Gordon Street. There was a munition factory. They only made uh, 303s, uh, rifle bullets. But up the road, they used to fill these hand grenades with the cordite uh, and the explosives and necessary. Now, after the war, they went back making uh, stoves and such like, you know, in moulding stoves and all the castings. While they were there, Meadows, my brother, moulded the mould to the eternal flame and I helped him. They knew me in, in Meadows and I knew the foreman, and I went along with them when they were poor. We had to pour about half a dozen with the ladles full and manufactured it and that was polished up and taken where it is situated there now, the Eternal Flame.
1: Len's Eternal Flame was lit at the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne by the Queen in 1954. It commemorates the dead of the Second World War, symbolising sacrifice and the perpetuity of remembrance.
2: I helped put that together after the war when I come back, I was going to go back with the foundry and uh, they they would have accepted me there, you know. There was a a foreman there by the name of Sandy McLeod, also of the same name, very broad Scotchman. He'd have an MAC and he always criticised me for not putting me A in. We put just an MC, L-E-O-D. And Sandy, which was the foreman there, he was an MAC. And he always criticised me for not spelling their name right.
1: Len, how old were you when you eventually left Shanghai and returned to Australia?
2: I would have been... uh, Oh, by the time I got home, would have been about seven or eight months after the war, but finished. I would have been around about the 19-year-old by the time I got back.
1: What year were you born?
2: I was born on the 2nd of the 6th, 26. six, twenty six. very easy to remember. Some very important people born in 1926. The Queen's mother, 26 obviously was a good year, but... It was a very frightening year. To give you an idea, when we only had a population, barely five million people in the whole of Australia, and they were talking about giving half of Australia away where we could fight the Japanese in the open. It was terrible. So everyone was horrified. You could see almost tears in their eyes expecting any minute... To be notified that the Japanese had landed, either in Western Australia or somewhere on the east coast, they were all terrified. That's stirred me up too, because as a young fella, as I was growing up, my mother told me all about the First World War, and that was going to be the end, the war to end all the First World War, and then suddenly, all of a sudden, that shattered. It wasn't so bad in 1939 when they were fighting in the Middle East, but when the Japs come in, I knew, as I grew up, that the Japanese Navy escorted my father in the First World War. They didn't come into it, but their Navy escorted our troop ships to the Middle East. Not many people know that, I don't think. But they were on our side in 1948, well, up to a point. And then all of a sudden, they bombed Pearl Harbor. Well, you know the story of that, the terrible atrocities that took place there. How could they do it? This is just a little bit of a story. When I was growing up, there used to be a group of us on the street corner, we never caused any trouble. We never broke into people's houses. We never smashed people's cars, windows. We did no damage to anyone. About eight of us on the street corner. and I was the youngest one. But see, being tall, I was always accepted. And I could always sit in. And I could find out what was going on. We was mainly talking about football and such like, or cricket. But the story came out this way, that one of the chaps said, we ought to ring up the local policeman. We all knew the local policeman because he made a point of coming around schools and everywhere. A constable by the name O'Donnell, he lived in Ballarat Road. Everyone knew him. We lived in Footscray in those days. We got the oldest one, which would have been uh, Charlie Newsom, to get on the phone and ring up Constable O'Donnell to come up and shift the, the larrikins, hooligans, and the uh, troublemakers and so-and-so off the street corner because they're making them usage mm-hmm. of themselves. He had the, the oldest voice. So Constable O'Donnell, very broad Irish, not very tall, thick set, another constable lived further away, a constable Grinter, they were pretty clever policemen in those days. They come up on their bikes at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, dark. We're waiting for them, see. Well, in those days, we could disperse down that passageway, across the park here, over there through eight vacant allotments, and disappear when we knew they were coming. How we knew they were coming, they were very clever. They used to come up on police bicycle in those days a big heavy bicycle and it had a generator on the front wheel on the top of the bike they had a headlight a big headlight that they could switch on and switch off which they did they switched the light off as they got near Prince Street and Mitchell Street in North Footscray and as I were getting two or three hundred yards away we were listening we could hear the generators on the two bikes, buzzing away, but no light. So we disperse. But see, being very clever constables, they woke up that we heard. So they didn't come the next night or the next night. I think I for two nights. And then all of a sudden, around the corner, on foot, they come and push four of us up against the picket fence. And guess who? I was one of them. <laughs> he lines us up, four of us. The others disappear. <laughs> I think I could have outraced the whole lot of them, but I got caught. It. It was and I was too late. But he's given us a big lecture that went a lot of hooligans creating a nuisance and so on. It goes on about hooligans and nuisance and blah, blah, blah. And he comes to the first fellow. He said, What's your name? He said, Charlie, Charlie who? And he said, Charlie, and he's nervous. He said, Charlie Newsom, N-E-W-S-O-N. But he thought it was, he thought it was Newsom. <laughs> and hit him over the head with his baton. Bang! Over his bloody head and a big bump. About half the size of an egg. <laughs> on, the, on the top of his head. And he was telling him the truth. His name was Charlie Newsom. And Charlie's hanging onto his head, and bloody, you know, half-climb. And he gets to the next fella, and he said, what's your name? He said, Jimmy Hoolahan." He's a bit nervous, too. And his name was Hoolahan, but, but, but this Irishman thought he meant Hooligan. Oh, no. <laughs> so what, he, what happens? He gets his head over the bloody head. Bang! And he's nursing a bloody big lump on his head. And I tell you, those battens in those days were not little buddy battens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyhow, he comes on the next fellow. And I'm trembling in my shoes. I've got one to come. He comes to this fellow and he said, what's your name? He said, by the way, this is the fellow who shot me later on, which was in, come from Western Australia in the Army. He said, what's your name? He said, my name is Billy, Billy Ho, Billy Bird. And he didn't get hit over the head. I wonder boy. That was strange. Didn't get hit over the head. And he said, And where do you live? He said, Number five, Emu Street. And the copper hit him over the head. He said, Just because my name's Buddy Steele. He said, I don't have to live in Iron Street. Let him again.
1: Oh, Bird Emu. <laughs> yes, right. OK. <laughs> I
2: thought he was taking, taking the pill out of him. <laughs> telling him, you know, he, he did live in Emu Street. He was telling him the truth. They were all telling him the truth. And the three of them got hit over the head. Now, on the next, and I tell you what, that learnt me to, to think quickly. And I think I started thinking quickly when I was in the, the army and the small ships. I had to think quickly. And he said to me, he said, What's your name? Now, I knew they got hit over the head because they said their name. And this fellow got hit over the head because he said emus is true. They all told the truth. And he said to me, he said, what's your name? I said, Lenny McLeod. I didn't get hit over the head. And he said, where do you live? Now, I remembered when he said his name, he got hit over the head. I said, just over there. And I pointed my <laughs> finger at the house. And do you know I was the only one that never got hit over the head. But getting back to telling you about how it was, those three fellows all ended up in the army and one that got away one of them who got away, he died as a prisoner of war. He was captured in Singapore, Singapore fell and died. One of our boys. Everyone ended up in the army.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That's how it was
0: in those days. And I, I thought
2: that is because it was telling the truth and it was comical.
1: The American Small Ships reunion is going to be held in Sydney at the Grace Hotel in May this year. Are you going?
2: Well, we went on the 20th of May last year. What happened? When I come home and I told different people where I was and my two girls were growing up and they'd go to school and talk about what their father did and they would tell others and other people would doubt it because they hadn't heard of it or knew much about it. I found the same thing with I, so I didn't talk to anyone about it, you know. As I grew up, I shut up about it because we're no good talking about it. But just a little bit before May, early last year, Denise, my youngest daughter, I've seen a little piece in the local paper up here in Queensland. Because if anyone in Queensland knew of anyone that was in these American small ships, or their fathers or relatives were, please ring such and such a telephone number so what has she done she knew all about it she knew that I was here so she rang that telephone number and spoke to the secretary in Sydney the secretary in Sydney within sight of a matter of days jumps on the plane comes up to Queensland and I'm in, in an old folks home with my wife my wife was in a bad way. She'd lost the use of both arms. She was in a bad way. She couldn't put her glasses on. She couldn't clean her teeth. She couldn't feed herself. And we had a a nice place. So we decided we shall let her. And we ended up going into a, a retirement village at Deception Bay. So he jumps on the plane, comes up, and arrives at Deception Bay where we were 10 o'clock in the morning, one of the nurses come up and said, I've got someone here to see you. Well, i send him in. I said, yeah, send him in. He come in and sat down, and he had a mobile, so I thought, in his top pocket, which I could see. But he sat down, and he said, right, I'd like to ask you some questions. Man. He said, you we were in the United States. Oh, I said, yeah he started to ask me where I joined and where I went. And I told him, you know, which I've told you, from up to Port Moresby, all around New Guinea, up to the Philippines. And I said, I ended up in Japan and so and so He's asking all these questions. I said, well, I can answer them as honestly as I can and as, as I remember them. About two hours asking me these questions. And then they started to get us ready, the wife and I, ready for midday lunch. And he said, do you mind if I come back after lunch? I said, no. So he come back after lunch, an hour or so later. He sat down, and I thought, well, this is strange. He's asking all these questions. He hadn't struck one, was had done the whole lot, you know. After about there an hour, hour and a half or so after lunch, and away he went. About a week later, he sent us back a great few pages, all typed out. And he said, I want you to read these carefully. Anything you think needs changing or is not right, let me know. So I read it very, very carefully a couple of times. He said, if it's true and correct, let me know. So I rang him up and I said, well, look, that's dead accurate. It's it's as accurate as I remember it, as honest as I could that was the start. Well, then, about a month later, I get an invitation to go down to Sydney, down to the big hotel in Sydney.
1: Ben's referring to the Grace Hotel in Sydney. It was the headquarters of the US Army Small Ships during World War II.
2: And do you know, you would not credit this, it was 75 years almost to the day that I walked through the same door in that hotel where General MacArthur had been taken over that place. And as I walked through, I had a nice big plaque on the wall, explained everything. You know, I thought, 74 years ago, goodness gracious. But that's true as anything. It was the same hotel that MacArthur had, Oh, it's all been done up and it's all beautiful hotel. But when I get there, the American Consul comes up and shakes me hand and, and the New Guinea Consul come up. Now I've got to tell you something about the New Guinea Consul. It struck me as funny. The New Guinea Consul said, Oh, I said, I've read your report, he said, and you were in numerous places in New Guinea. He said, Could you name a few? Well, I named them just like I named them to you. round New Guinea, above, right around the north coast, up the north coast, and all the whole lot, over and wow, wow, central New Guinea. I dropped supplies in every one of those places where they needed troops and where we had uh, spotters. We used to have spotters on different parts of the coast, and we would supply them with food every now and again, which fly over and drop them food. I only ever dropped food. I didn't ever use a parachute once. We used to just kick it straight out of the plane. Great big heaps, straight out. All in boxes or all in tins. The tins would be in bags or the boxes would be in great big sacks. So when it hit the ground, it would tend to all stay together. Might bust open a few tins and things like that. a few tins. But getting back to the New Guinea consul, when I'd finished telling him that, he said, do you know something, man? He said, you know more about my country than I do myself? <laughs> <laughs> that was the consul telling me that I'd seen more of his country than he'd seen himself. But then the American consul, I pinned a few more medals on me, and he said, you've got more medals to come. He said, You've got the occupation of. uh, He pinned the Merchant Service Medal and uh, some other service medal on me. I've got them there. I've got my own. Not that I believe in medals, but my grandchildren might like them after I've gone, you know. My daughter will pass them on. And uh, he said, There's several more to come. Oh, yeah, there's the occupation of Japan and the uh, Leyte campaign and the Manila campaign. There's three more medals or something. There. But uh, Trump has been too busy with other things, you know, and he might get around half of them there, I think, by uh, the 18th of next month when we're there. There was several hundred well dressed people that had relatives, either. Some of them had their husbands, you know, elderly women mm-hmm. about my age there. My husband's pastime were in the small ships. And the only thing they could find was four of us. And I was by far the most fit and able body of the other three. I have found out since but at least two of them have packed in. So there could only be one left and myself if he's still alive. In America, they look on it as a big deal, you know.
1: It is a big deal, Len. Len, just getting back to one thing that you mentioned, you talked about photos. Did you take your own photos? Have you got photos that you personally took during that time or are they all official photos?
2: And we weren't allowed. It was illegal to carry a camera and in case we were captured. They wouldn't let us have a camera. I got a photo taken when I was in the Philippines. And that's about the only... Oh, a couple on a ship. I got one on the Armand Considere. I was with one of the deck boys. And I got a couple of snaps. But uh, I would have liked... And what I should have done, thinking back, if I could have only put the dates down, the dates we'd join these ships would have been nice, you
1: know. You've done exceptionally okay. well at any rate, Len, to remember all this and get it down.
2: Not that I want to hear it, but the kids kids know it's Then.
1: You deserve for the people of Australia to hear your story, Len. You deserve it.
2: Why I interested in it is not so much for myself, but there were 3,400 other people
0: and an awful
2: lot of them. Do you know they weren't entitled to anything in the way of a pension? They weren't recognized by the DVA. The DVA recognized me because I was in New Guinea and I dropped supplies all over New Guinea. They know that. I was a volunteer when they were first dropping. We would go out. I never told you the full story. Nine planes would go out, would take off at Port Moresby when they got an all-clear, when they knew there was no Japanese approaching because we had observation points miles around, hundreds of miles around. Nine of us would take off and we'd go up into a formation of 3 they There'd be three what we term. 347s. They were DC 3s in Australian terms, or C 47s in American terms. And nine of them, they just got nine in. And that's where they wanted 18 men to drop when we volunteered, in the first 18. So then the 18 of us were always together. They'd have two army personnel and the radio operator in the DC 3. One would stand at the door. The doors were left on the ground, the two doors, and a big open gap of about eight feet wide with these two doors. They'd throw them on the ground and we take off without the doors and then we'd stack them. But I was one of the tallest and I, I took up the position on the floor where well, I put my feet out and scared out a whole load. Each plane would carry approximately two and ton which you can't drop all of those together, and you had to go up between the wings. They were all stacked boxes and tins, and take them down and stack them there. And then a radio operator on the plane. The two pilots, they were pretty smart. They'd have an Australian pilot, an American co-pilot, or vice versa. There was always an Australian-American flying the plane, and they had a radio operator, which sometimes Australians, sometimes American. But they used to stack up maybe several hundred weight. It used to take anywhere between five and eight drops, but come down one behind the other, if we were all dropping together, one behind the other about a kilometre apart, to treetop level, and then zoom up when we kicked it out, and then they'd go around and we'd stack up another load until the two and a half ton pilot would say, "Get as much as you can out. I don't have to go down for another run." If we got it out in five lots, I was happy as anything because they'd just circle around and wait for the others. They might take six or seven runs down, and we'd wait for them to come up, and then we'd join up a sh- three and then three behind, and three behind that. But we were always escorted by so many fighter planes. I used to go into the control centre, pencilled on the board, five or six fighter planes would be around us, somewhere around us. Sometimes we'd see them close, sometimes they'd be further away. A couple of times we were on our way to drop supplies we turned round we'd come back over. And I looked out and I looked down there we're back in Port Morris where we dropped nothing. So when we got on the ground I said, What's the trouble? I said, Well, oh, the Japs were bombing where we were gonna drop in that vicinity. So we didn't want to be mixed up with them. So we come back and waited four or five hours before we went out again.
1: Were your fighter escort from the RAAF or were they Americans? Americans, all Americans, right?
2: Well, as far as I know, could be a combination. I think flying the the C forty sevens or the DC threes, whichever you like, they had an American pilot, but I think uh, an Australian pilot did them because I think the Australian pilots knew the area better. You know what I mean? Some of them had flown over New Guinea more, whereas the American was uh, at a loss for a while until he'd done it a while, you know. That's why I think they had the Australian and the American pilot and co-pilot. In the fighter planes, I would say they were all American simply because I don't think there was too many Australians that could have flown them. Our fighter planes in those days... You know the stories. If they were up there, they took off to land. I forget the name of it, but it was useless, totally useless. The Wirraway. Yeah, oh, the Wirraway. Oh, goodness yeah, the old Wirraway. Well, that was our fighter plane when war broke out. It was useless. England was too busy over there with the Germans, you sure. and they wouldn't let any more than the 6th and 7th Battalion come home.
1: That C forty seven was also affectionately known as the biscuit bomber. Why was it called That's, a biscuit bomber?
2: Well, I think that was the only task it could do.
1: Well, dropping and, supplies.
2: Yes. Mm. As far as I'm concerned, and we sometimes done two trips in a day before the weather cut up. In the tropics up there, the weather can change in, in an hour. But usually in the morning, it would be nice and clear and all right for three or four hours, and we'd get a drop in. Many times, the weather would be against us, you know. I spoke to one of the chaps in our flight when nine of us took off on this particular day when I lost me too much, which I had been with for quite some time. When we were dropping about the door, there was a red and a green light. We were lectured that when the green light comes on, kick it all out as quick as you can. But soon as the red light goes on, stop. Even don't kick anything more out. Now, whether they kicked it out or whether it got caught somewhere, what happened? The one was crashed. I found this from an eyewitness on the army, we were dropping supplies to him. And just by a coincidence, in Port Moresby, I was in a group of fellows, and he was telling the story about the biscuit bomber Crush. So I walked in. So I listened. And I didn't finish and I said, When was this? And so on and so. And where? I forget the name of the native village we were dropping in I said I was on one of those flights. I dropped maybe the one before that. But when we dropped, we'd go up and you wouldn't see the other one behind you. When you got up and you circled at the top and looked back, we were in a position I could have seen it crash, but we weren't in the same position. So I didn't actually witness it crash, but we're in the same circle. He explained to me, yeah, they were dropping down to us. And uh, he said, uh, what happened? you know what happened, then I said, no, no idea. He said, what happened? See, they'd put two four-gallon drums of biscuits. They'd dropped a lot of biscuits and a lot of bully beef. You know the bully beef, tinge, little tinge. What happened? The biscuits, two in a bag... But they were light, so the biscuits were not light, and they blew back. They must have been on the rise because it's all mountainous country. They come down the valley and then they've got to turn to get out of the valley, and as he turned to go up, the biscuits must have flown back and got in in between the elevator and the rudder, the plane. Now, if the pilot would have known that, and he could have flicked the, the rudder a little bit or the elevator up or down, it would have gone away. But he had to turn in the mountain, and no way did he want to alter that. And the plane just plowed straight straight over and down, killed, them. killed the, the five, two soldiers, the two droppers, the radio operator and the co-pilot and the pilot. And uh, he told me all about it. And I said to him, I said, did you let them know, you know? He said, I I went and let them know, but he said, whether they took notice. He said, I could see the thing jammed in the tail because he was on the ground and it was only just 20 feet above the trees. you know, just above the top of the tree. He witnessed it.
1: It's a sad story. sad story (laughs) repeated too many times in wartime. I'm going yeah. to look forward to seeing you in Sydney in May, and okay. I'm looking forward to hearing how you went with Shanghai because at that stage you would have been and come back.
2: Well, I'm a little bit surprised already with what I've seen on on the ABC show yeah. there. I think myself our politicians it wouldn't hurt them to go and see it too. I think what I've just seen the roadwork and the uh, the buildings and. I'll be very interested, because bear in mind, as bad as you could see it, or anyone else could see it, I would put it not ten times, it was hundreds of times worse than the average person could could see it, how the starvation, death and destruction from civilian people, just ordinary men, women and little kids, you know, dying of starvation.